First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know and some things you didn't about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. Hey everybody, welcome to Then Comes What. This is Nathan, your humble and obedient host, and that ought to be enough, but... I've got three more for you. I've got Pastor Max Carell. Hello, Nathan. I've got Pastor Tim Bailey. Hi, Nate. And Pastor Jake Bensel. Hey, how you doing? The trifecta of... Pomposity. Pomposity. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Today's issue should be interesting. I want to talk about dual income families. Should women work outside the home? That sort of thing. So let's... Let me just throw the issue out there and... See who wants to say what? Well, it's interesting. The first problem I ever had in the ministry was because of this issue. I preached Titus 2, and I said that women should not have full-time jobs out of the home. And immediately, the people that were most supportive of me coming to be their pastor stomped on me with combat boots. So it was a defining moment. It was like in the first week or two of my taking up the call of a pastor and I had a, a forest fire on my hands. Did you know you were walking into a battle, or was it just something that you said incidentally, or what? No, I picked the text. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure whether I was concerned about the church. I'm sure I was. And it was interesting that the people that were angry about the sermon were uh, women who didn't work, who had made a decision that they were going to be a home mother and wife. But they were offended in behalf of other people who they suspected were angry. And that's often in the ministry, your your greatest problems are not people who say, I'm angry, but people who say, how could you hurt so-and-so that way, who take on other people's supposed offenses. But so-and-so in that case, in fact, wasn't offended. In other words, the women who worked outside the home didn't mind you saying that? Well, so I went over to the main woman's house who was married to a guy that was on the search committee, and uh, she was very brittle about it and not pleased with me at all. And she said that a woman that lived just down the street from, well, it's not a street, it was out in the country, who lived just down the road a little bit from their farm, who worked full time, you know, how could I possibly preach that to this woman. And so I said, well, I'll go over and talk to her and apologize and make it clear to her that I wasn't singling her out and this, that, and the other thing. Well, when I went over to the other woman's house, she was not offended at all. And she said that the reason she worked full-time was because her husband wouldn't let her stay home, that he wanted double income. And so I think that that was a lesson for me Mm. in not assuming that when other people said somebody was angry, that they were accurately reporting. And so one of the things I have as a policy now is, unless it's a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, I, or my wife, or I never want anybody reporting somebody else's offense. I always say to them, you tell me what you're concerned about, what you're upset about. Don't don't report other people to me. I don't want to hear your reports of other people. That's because I've come to realize that you can't trust them a lot of times. What was the case that you made from Titus 2 exactly? And what did you say? And what is the case? Yeah, the case is, and this is what I said, but you know, you get around firestorms and it really doesn't matter what you say. People are going to hear what they want to hear and disregard the rest. And specifically when it comes to working outside of the home, what people want to hear is that you're saying that nobody should work outside of the home because... That's how rigid they are in rejecting any outside income for the home or because they want to be offended. And so... So people on both sides of the... Yeah, they'll both take you out of context and report you as saying something that you didn't say. So the classic text is found in Titus 2. It says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And so what we know is that what comes next is sound doctrine. You know, we like to make these arbitrary distinctions between what is practice and doctrine. 
Mm-hmm. You know, orthodoxy, orthoproxy. Then he gives sex-specific sound doctrine, which doesn't fit into our androgynous world today, where he generalizes what men need to be told and what women. He says, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Then he says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then a purpose clause, so that, well, so that what? Well, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And then another purpose clause, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, will not be maligned. I think this is one of the most neglected texts that there is in Scripture, and not for the reason everybody's going to think I'm going to say, which is we don't teach women enough that they should be homebodies. I think it's neglected because it's so clear in calling older women to teach younger women and to exercise authority over them. And I think an awful lot of the reason that we have such pushes on for, I'm a woman theologian, and we have deaconesses, and we have women elders, and we have women that attend our elders' meetings who are there representing the concerns of women and children, let alone the difficulties male elders have dealing with the women of the church who are out of control, who don't respect their husbands, who aren't good mothers. I think a lot of the reason is we're not following a basic principle of New Testament polity that we see here. We're just naturally, we're told what the older women should do that's fitting for sound doctrine. And then it says the reason that they should do and be this way is so that they may encourage the young women, so that they may teach the young women. And then we have this curriculum that older women are to give younger women. It couldn't be a more appropriate one. Couldn't be more counterculture inside the Reformed Church as it is outside. And that is encourage the young women, teach young women, one, to love their husbands. Two, to love their children. Three, to be sensible. Four, to be pure. Five, to be workers at home. Six, to be kind. Seven, to be subject to their own husbands. And, you know, Mary Lee and I will be talking about a situation in the church, and I'm telling you, at this point in my life, I am so tired of having people think that the pastors and elders can affect a change, can admonish, can rebuke, can correct, can exhort young mothers or or older mothers of our church. And in my experience, it's almost always a complete disaster because typically that, that woman already has a husband who doesn't exhort her and who doesn't admonish her, and then I'm supposed to do it? And I've talked, my, both my brothers are pastors, i talked to them about what, you know, about the success rate they have in dealing with women who are in basic, serious ways disobedient to the Word of God, okay? And both of them, we look at each other and go, yikes, what way have you found successful? And we all just look at each other and say, it doesn't matter what we do. If we meet with them with our wives, if we meet with them with a couple elders, if we ask them to come to the elders' meeting so the elders can talk, it just doesn't matter what we do. If you have a husband who is not involved in leading his wife, and so I've gotten to the point now where if, if there is a problem in a home and the woman is at least half the problem, let alone more, I say to my wife at times, you know, where she thinks that I should handle something, I, I actually, in the, I can remember in the recent past saying to her, love her. She's a woman. You're a woman. Would you talk to her? That shows the difficulty of dealing with younger women without having an older woman deal with them. And so everybody's saying, hey, I I thought you guys were going to talk about women working outside the home. So here's a joke. Well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my wife actually having an obligation to work outside our home. But I want to point out that what I said in the sermon going back was that women are supposed to be domestic. Their first obligation, their first calling, their first privilege is their home, their marriage, their children. And when you get to the point where your work requires you to bring home fast food every night, to resent 
seeing your children at the end of the day because you're so tired emotionally from the work that you've had to do, or to feel guilty, which is maybe the the largest problem, that you're stealing from your child your motherhood. And so you're always in a manipulative relationship with your little toddler, for heaven's sakes, because your toddler senses your guilt and is whining all the time. That is a violation of scripture. That is not having your first priority be your home. That is a direct violation of the command that older women are to teach younger women to be domestic. So that's a long response. <laughs> Can I make the uh, argument that I hear, which is this, is, this is a cultural thing, actually. What the Apostle Paul is concerned about is making sure that the word of God is not maligned, that Christians are taken seriously, that they're respected. And so given the patriarchal culture that he lived in, he encouraged everyone to conform and to submit, but it's not actually binding. And if it was, we'd hear a lot more passages like that in a lot broader contexts. Hooey. <laughs> <laughs> Don't care for much for that argument, huh? What, did we stop being husband and wife since then? Have we stopped having children since then? Do we not live in homes? Are we are we living in some kind of communal dormitory now? You know, we live in a pretty nasty culture, so I don't think being kind and or a pretty sexualized culture. So I don't think that teaching uh, women to be pure or sensible, for that matter, because no everybody's lost their minds, is really going to get a lot of respect. So we ought to teach. I mean, if this passage is teaching cultural conformity, then come on, you're throwing out kindness, purity, and sensibility. Generally, what the Apostle Paul does when he teaches, especially ethics, is he goes against the grain. And so, people are so patronizing about the Apostle Paul and Jesus. I mean, when I first went in the ministry, everybody said that Jesus could be revolutionary about everything but sexuality because his world was such an oppressive one sexually. And so, Jesus had to reinforce the status quo, which was male leadership. I remember saying to the president of Buke Seminary, Arlo Duba, when he actually said that to me, the stupidity, the sheer stupidity of it, and I said, oh yeah, you know, Jesus was such a coward, you know, he was running around worried about what would offend people. That's why he got killed, because he was being so careful not to offend people. So on this issue, when people bring up the cultural argument, virtually every single thing said in the New Testament has a context, a sitzim leben, you know? And what are you going to do? You're going to dismiss the substitutionary atonement because back then people still understood how shameful it was to be hung on a cross and they had the Old Testament. If you want to explain away the New Testament, have at it. Knock your socks off, but you're not a Christian. Every single thing written in the New Testament is apostolic because everything written is apostolic authorship. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you know, kiss off the apostles. Now, I'm being hard on this because I know where I'm headed eventually in this, in this podcast. But generally in the ministry, I find the place of greatest rebellion in the person I'm talking to, and I hone in on it immediately, because that's an indication whether somebody's teachable. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. And so on this issue, the, the, the cultural argument is, a like David said, Pastor Max, it's a bunch of hooey. Even the phrase patriarchal context, guess what? We all live in a patriarchal context because we live in a patriarchal world because it's the father's world. Everything yeah. is always inevitably this is patriarchal. My father's world. I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. And if you read anthropologists that are honest, they'll admit it. They'll, yeah. they'll sell you all human culture is patriarchal. Even in the most, you know, one of the puzzles that you, you know, you read articles about from time to time is why in homes where they profess to be egalitarian, do they actually function sort of patriarchally? How do we, how do we break this? We can't like, <laughs> how do we solve this mystery? <laughs> All right, let me try another one, <clears throat> if I may. Priscilla, Deborah, uh, Lydia, I'm sure I'm not thinking of some, but there's, there's actually lots of women recorded in the scriptures that don't seem to operate inside, within this uh, keepers at home paradigm. You know, if you want to find a way of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal, this world is your oyster shell. Everybody will agree with you, but you read Calvin on any of these things from five centuries ago, and he says, yeah, 
you know, about Deborah. Yeah, God was shaming the men of the time. You read the story in its context, it's obvious that's what's going on. And the same thing is true of Priscilla and Aquila. You know, everybody says, well, Priscilla instructed Apollos so that he came to a better understanding of the gospel and a baptism of, of our Lord. And it's as if we're supposed to feel that this is a threat to our perquisites as men and our ideological commitment to male officerhood. And it's like, I remember when my first Sunday in Partyville, okay, now this has a point, I walk across the sidewalk behind our house from the garage over to the office of the church, which is behind the sanctuary. I walk up the stairs and there is a bag lying on the stoop outside of the back door of the church. And the bag has a bunch of beer bottles in it and then some beer bottles lying on the stoop. So I I lean over, I pick up the bag and I put the other beer bottles in the bag. I unlock the door, I walk into the church and I throw the bag into the trash. Right before the service starts, this busybody male elder comes hurrying up to me with great concern on his face, telling me that he's found a bag with beer bottles in the church. And he's very concerned about this. And of course, the implication is, since I'm the only one that was there during the week, obviously I'm drinking beer in the church. And at the time, I never drank beer. We never had any alcohol in our home. And so I look at him, I say, yeah, actually, those beer bottles were outside, dumped on the stoop. And so I picked them up and threw them out. He looks at me and he says, well, I think that you should go into leading worship this morning and start by explaining to the congregation why those beer bottles in that bag were in the trash. And I was predisposed to take his advice. He, he was an elder, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, and then all of a sudden I thought, oh, right. My first Sunday, I'm going to get up and explain that actually I wasn't the one that drank the beer. I wasn't the one that was throwing beer bottles out. Now, now, okay, what's the connection? Well, the connection is, seriously, I'm supposed to act like Deborah and Dorcas and Priscilla are a problem? I mean, seriously? That's the most natural thing I've ever seen in my life. If you showed up at Joe and Mary Lou Bailey's home and you had a defective doctrine of baptism, I think that probably the description would be that Joe and Mary Lou worked with you to come to a better understanding. And in fact, if that had happened in Mom and Dad Taylor's home, I think the report would be Ken and Margaret Taylor worked with them, and Margaret would have to do most of the time because Ken didn't really have a voice at all. These things I've listened to for 40 years now. And they're so elementary, Dr. Watson. <laughs> it's like, okay, Priscilla and Nicole, generally that's how things work. Generally, if you take somebody into your home, both the husband and wife understand something, they'll both participate, and it's repressed people who are insecure who would tell their wife, uh, honey, he's a man, you be quiet, me man, me buona, me, me white man, me explain, you silence. And, and that's how I feel also about people that, you know, you say be domestic or be, be devoted to the household. And they say, what about Proverbs 31? That woman buys and sells property. And I'm like, dude, seriously. I mean, what woman doesn't buy and sell property? What woman does not have a commercial enterprise that she's always working on? Isn't that what it means to be a wife? That, that you and your husband share the financial needs, the financial decisions. What man would ever make decisions about the finances of his home without talking to his wife? And who gives a rip whether or not he's the one that writes the check or she does? So I'm sorry, I'm intense today. But I have to admit at this point in my life, I'm so tired of inane arguments that people think prove things. It's like they want us to act as insecure as they are. Okay, so I, I imagine a lot of people are probably thinking, okay, we have the obvious biblical truth, and then we have the application, which we've right. said is... Multifaceted. Multifaceted and Multifarious. Messy and real. How do you put the two together? What, what principles can I actually live by practically in my day-to-day life? Okay, so the answer to that is nobody else can make the decision for you. 
this is a decision that every couple has to make of what is faithfulness to God in being domestic for the woman. Now, I did not say that nobody else can't tell you that you have failed. I think it is possible to go to couples and say you are not giving the priority to the home that you need to as husband and wife. Husband, have you told your wife this? In other words, there are times where disobedience of this is very clear. But so much of Scripture is judgments. And I think all of us in this room have been counseling with people where we've made a judgment, talked to the people about it, and found out there were parts of the decision that we didn't understand. Mm Mm-hmm. And that at that point, we're fine. What we can't do is not be zealous for our wives, and and then if that fails, for ourselves, guarding the dignity of motherhood. And the way you guard it is not let it be relegated by some mind-numbing pencil-pushing for some corporate you know, master of the universe and, and her thinking that she gets more emotionally and more financially out of doing that than home, and so she abandons the home, or her husband makes her. So before the decision gets made, let's say that by some odd chance, a couple came to you and said, we're trying to make this decision. What pitfalls would you point out to them? What things would you point out to them to say, you have to make this decision, but here are some, here are some things you should watch out for? Well, greed. Who's usually more greedy? The husband. Don't you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So that goes back to just the very beginning of even the decisions you make prior to marriage, if you're a woman. <laughs> Taking on debt, mm-hmm. marrying a fool who is greedy, who has accumulated debt for himself, who's shown himself to not be a hard worker, the kind of worker that is going to be able to provide for his wife, who's going to be willing to do that. Those are all things that need to, I guess, be dealt with from the outset. Yeah, but I don't think you always see those things, first of all. And secondly, I think we need to assume, because it's true, that temptations come to us in the middle of our marriage or in the first five years or in the first seven years. And so men, men who are faced with the task of leading their wives in just this decision Mm -hmm. are going to be tempted to specific kinds of actions and and, – desires for money and whatever that they might not have felt. I do think that in leadership, as pastors and elders, and as older women, my wife, your your wives, we have to be very careful that we don't remove the decision-making by having a strong opinion. Because, you know, when you're looking at a woman whose husband pressures her to take a job, It would be very easy, if that woman is competent, to assume that she likes the perquisites that come with having a full-time job, and that it's a relief to her to not have to care for her children and have somebody else do it, right? And it would be very easy for that to be, in fact, not the case at all. She might be being godly and disciplining herself not to show her bitterness and anger and fears. And so we have to be very careful in how we lead on issues of particularity when it comes to biblical commands. Because the real person in that situation that needs to be talked to is the husband. It's not the wife. You know, I just think, for instance, about myself and Mary Lee, my wife, and David, I think about you and your wife. We hit this issue, we've both hit it a number of times in our own marriages, and we hit it very, very differently. I don't know, as I was thinking about it, you guys said greed on the part of the man, and I I was thinking it may be helpful if we like picked out two things for the men that are motives that will go that'll be a, a pit to fall into and a couple things for women that would be a pit to fall into. Greed certainly for the man is immediately a pit he falls into. Yeah. For me it's almost entirely the greed of status. Standard of living. I don't want to be different than my friends. I don't want to be behind other people in terms of what well, I've accumulated. I don't think of that as greed, though. I think of that as fear of men. Or pride. Yeah, I could. Because you don't want to. No, I, mean, I, think, it's, I think it's greed. It's really not, It's aspirational. Connected. Yeah. Well, but I'm thinking of it from a different perspective, I think, because there are times mm-hmm. when, in my marriage, family members have felt sorry for my wife. Yeah, yeah, for being married to me, and it's and it's because yeah. you f- you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah, it's not quite because she's married to you. It's because she does not have the joy of having her competence affirmed by anybody but you. 
In other words, they would think that Annie would do very, very well at all kinds of jobs and would not have to be so dependent upon your, you for your approval. She could have her own approval, her own life, essentially. That's what I think people think. Yes, but at the bottom, they think she suffers. And that's... that's yeah, suffering their... and not having as many goodies as they get. And so you realize that... Yeah, but you Even tell the them, point of goodies. You tell like, them about telling Annie she could not teach. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not opposed to Annie having a job. Annie right now teaches kindergarten. She has a degree in elementary education. She teaches kindergarten. Thank goodness I'm, she has a degree. Yeah, that was that's really the thing. But even if she didn't have a degree, it might work out that I wouldn't be opposed to her having a job. However, she wasn't teaching a few years ago. And she came to me and said, what if I would go work at Kohl's? What if I would work at Kohl's just one or two nights a week? She wanted to work overnight. I could make a little extra money. We could do this. We could do this. I knew some of her motivation for wanting it. It was true that she wanted a little extra money. That's not a lie. It was also true that she felt great pressure whenever anyone would ask her what she does. Because that's what women get asked. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Mm -hmm. And the last thing they want to say that they do is anything connected to Titus 2. They never want to say any of those things, which is kind of interesting about it. They only want to say something else because they know that that's how that they will be approved of and have standing in today's world here. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that was part of the motivation. And I also knew that if my wife worked overnight, third shift, one night a week, our home would be disrupted for three nights for every for three days for every night she worked overnight. It would just cause complete disruption to our house. And so I said, no, I don't ever want you working at Kohl's overnight. That's what you wanted me to say. Well, yes, because it does show a refusal to allow this world to press you into its mold. I think that that's one of the most important things that I want to say on this subject do not allow the world to press you into its mold. Husbands, make your decision knowing that you will account to God for your stewardship of your home, your children, and your wife. And wives, be very careful on this because many women fail to be helpmates to their husband by refusing to cry and to appeal and to speak biblically to them when the, the husbands are not being faithful to God. It's a complicated thing. It's extremely you really, complicated. You really have to love your wife, and you really have to submit to your husband and his leadership in the home. You have to have faith and trust God for both things to be happening, and in the middle of it, it's still complicated. It grieves me that so few people hear sermons on this because the world is at its most intense on this subject. And the way I've seen that is my, my whole ministry, if I ask women what they do, which of course is an obligatory statement today, I can't tell you how many times women have looked at me who I don't know yet, and they will say, oh, I, or you say, do you work? And they say, no, I don't work. I'm, I'm a housewife. I'm a home mother, okay? And I always respond to them by getting a cynical look on my face. And saying, oh, I guess that means you sit around watching soap operas and eating bonbons every day. Is that what you do? And, you know, people would be offended that I do that to these women. But I think it's something that intense that needs to be said to them for them not to be oppressed by our world and to, to be denigrating their calling, even when they're asked by a pastor what they do. And that is a response, I think, that's better than having a keepers at home parade, oh. you know, where you have keepers at home That's flags so and we march. The fact of the matter is, it is God's choice. He made us this way, and it has design that is good. We don't, we don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to have a parade about it. And in a way, when you say that to them, it kind of, it's shocking. And so they're getting shocked and they're saying, oh, you're just being ridiculous because you know how much work a, mo a mother does mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, oh, okay. So you understand. And it's more affirming to them to have someone understand the truth about their calling in this world. It's more affirming to them than if you had some kind of hackneyed parade about it. You know, when I think about how our wives work, 
now it's a little different from Max and me, from Dave and me, than it is for the rest of the other two of you because you're younger. Is Mary Lee a keeper at home? No, actually she's not. Mary Lee is absolutely never, ever, ever, ever home. She is never home. Why is she never home? Well, because she's a keeper at home. Well, how can it both be true? Well, now she's a grandmother, and so she is perpetually taking care of our uh, little precious granddaughter, uh, Mar Mary Louise. She is picking up kids last night at the church, taking them home so their mother can stay at home. She's a doula and has done, what, 80 births, 80-some births that she has been with a woman for anywhere from two hours to 36 hours. No, she is not at home. And yes, she's a keeper at home. And so I want to say about this issue that you show me the woman who is married, and I can tell you whether she is faithful to this text. And it will have very little to do with whether there's outside income that comes into her home through her. It will have very little to do with where she is bodily. It's all about what her priorities are, okay? And feminine priorities always start as masculine priorities start, and that is with the curse that is sex-specific that God has given them. And a man who is well-ordered flows from thistles and thorns. And a woman who is well-ordered flows from pain in childbirth. And so from that, right away, it shows the callings that we have. I remember right after the falling of the Iron Curtain, I was reading a New Yorker piece on, on feminism in, in Russia. So the Iron Curtain had just fallen. And this uh, journalist went over to Russia and went all over the country interviewing different people. And one of the persons she inter interviewed was a psychiatrist, a female psychiatrist in, behind the Iron Curtain, who was a feminist. She identified as a feminist. She was a psychiatrist. And I still have this article. And in the article, the feminist psychiatrist says that what, what happens is they all admit that the men are pathetic in Russia, that they're weak, that they're alkies, you know, alcoholics, that they can't stand up to any woman, and that the woman just oppress the men across their country. This is what is said again and again in this article, right? And finally, the psychiatrist woman says, what I feel like is we need a return to the strong Decemberist men. And I mean, you think about that being the conclusion of a feminist psychiatrist after the Iron Curtain has fallen, that she'd like to get back to the strong Decemberist men. And then she says that men should in the home be, and, and they use as an illustration, the oppressiveness of the boys in the daycare centers, uh, the, the oppression of the boys by the girls in the daycare center. I mean, it's just absolutely agreed that men were weak in Russia. And then she says, what we need is a return to the Decemberist men, the strong Decemberist men of the revolution. And then she says, women are made to be the ministers of the interior and men are made to be the ministers of the exterior. And here I'm reading in the New Yorker, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, as the Evangelical Reformed Church is peddling as fast and hard as they can to leave such benighted, stupid, unevolved things behind them. God, like David said, Max just said it, God made us certain ways. And the man needs his wife to have her focus on the home because he has to be out of the home. People are going to say, well, that's just in a post-industrial society and all this stuff. And back in the old days, things were neat because the husband could just be focused in the home doing his work with his wife side by. And it's like, okay, yeah, 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 I get it. It's all a function of post-industrial societies, information societies. And it's like, again, please, can we stop patronizing dead people and patting ourselves on the back? The fact is, always, always, Scripture is profitable. And it says that older women need to teach younger women to be being subject to their husbands. Do we still need that? Uh, I think so. And then it says to be domestic, to be keepers at home. Apparently, all through human history, it's hard for women to not gad about, to not be gossips, and to stay home. I think pastors need to preach on this and, and older women need to teach on this because 
It is such a point of vulnerability emotionally for Christian women today. And if you allow your wife to fight against her sisters and brothers-in-law and her mother on this issue, and you're not the one they hate. The thing I love about Max is he's the one that his family dislikes on this issue. And isn't that sweet that Annie has space to room because her husband is hard-headed? You said you were going to tell the story about Mary Lee working outside the home. I don't want well, to Well, Mary Lee has always worked outside though. When we first got married, we painted and cleaned carpet together and, and fought. It was a great way to learn to get along in marriage by working together. So we were together. Then she started making these Muslim uh, nightgowns, just gorgeous uh, Victorian design. Sold them down on State Street in Madison at a co-op. And then began to get a lot of orders from people in the church and people that we knew because they were beautiful. She's an excellent seamstress. And so I put, began to put pressure on her that she should make more nightgowns. Well, by then, Heather was around. And I just realized one day that I was oppressing Mary Lee's freedom to be a mother. And so I said to her one day, lover, and we were dirt poor. I know it's hard for people to imagine that. We were dirt poor. And I said, lover, I want to make you a promise that from now on, I'm never, ever going to put pressure on you again to bring income into the home. That's my responsibility, and I'll do it. And if I ever do put pressure on you, you remind me what I just said. I'm accountable for it. And I think once or twice as the years went by, I did put pressure on her through one thing or another. And I do know that when we, there wasn't much of an issue up in Wisconsin, but when we moved here, there was no good option for the schooling of our children. And we were not going to have them in public school, although once and twice we did have one child in for a year or so. But it required us to start a Christian school, and there was, there was a classroom in the basement of a local church that Mary Lee, from that point on, gave herself to. And within a few years, she was first she was chairman of the board, and then she was principal. And during those years, I was insanely busy and insanely drained from the conflict in the church that I had taken the call to. And Mary Lee was always working more than 40 hours a week running that school so that our children could get in. And we didn't get any discount on tuition. She, she did everything. She interviewed all the teachers and hired them. She interviewed the parents, the students. She disciplined. She, and I always felt weird, but she didn't get paid. <laughs> it was the worst of both worlds. There would be times where things would be so difficult at the church that I was the senior pastor of at the time that I'd say, lover, you have to... And back at that time, yesterday, she looked through old pictures, and I have a picture of, it was during that time that we had, we had three people living with us also. We had my Annie Lane, who was in her 90s. We had a, a niece whose parents asked if we would take her. And we had that stupendous, splendiferous young man, John Crumb, living with us. Okay. It was difficult. And anybody looking at our home would probably have said, that we were violating Titus too, But there was nobody else to run the school. There was no one. And so you get into situations like that, and your goal isn't for your wife to be able to say, I run a school. Mary Lee would never do that. So I don't know. I, I'm afraid that people are going to hear this story and just say, well, you didn't obey the Bible. The Bible says that she should have been a keeper at home. And to me, for her to run that school... And I couldn't do it because of the church. You guys know. It was insane. And then we had people living with us. But it was wonderful. It was the best of times, and it was the best of times. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, people might say, well, you're a hypocrite. And I say, well, it's not the first time I've probably been a hypocrite. So I don't know what to say about <laughs> that. But that's how I answer you, Nate. We all have been and are hypocrites. And that's part of the reality of we're doing this now it is not our best life now it is the life we're living now and it's not easy we're just trying to thread our way through and try to have obedience and grow is there a tell for when someone's being too rigid about this sort of thing if someone's listening and they're being too rigid for this sort of about this sort of thing how how do they know well anytime you're proud of something and it's a flashpoint with you David was talking earlier about the keepers at home movement. We don't need a movement because obedience is not a movement. 
And obedience sexually is not a movement. If you're cutting doilies and wearing lace and you live in some fantasy about what life used to be like and you like reading What's Her Face? Laura Ingalls Wilder. Well, yeah, but more. Willa Cather. No, no, no. What's Her Face? Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Yeah. Jane Austen's great. Well. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, seriously, if you're proud and parading your righteousness on anything, Mm. it's just no good. Because it just oppresses other people and it oppresses your children. It probably oppresses your husband. So people who are really rigid about this are giving a disproportionate emphasis to this as against other things that they also have an obligation to observe that Scripture says. Jake, what are you thinking? Um, I am stuck thinking about my grandma and my stepmom in my own loop of self-processing, mm-hmm. I guess. My grandparents came out of the Depression, and uh, my grandfather always worked two and three jobs until one day my grandmother was like, you know what? You need to be home more with the kids. I'm going to go get a job during the day while the kids are at school. And so that's what she did. So he dropped uh, one of his evening jobs. It was pivotal in my dad's life because that's when my grandpa started coaching his baseball team. And my grandpa didn't even know anything about baseball. But it was really when and how my dad began to really connect with his dad. And, And that's what, you know, helped us through the divorce years and everything after that. And so, you know, I I think about what what would you say to my grandma or to my grandpa Mm -hmm. about my grandma going back to work? Well, I think the only thing that you could say is, well, let's talk maybe about your standard of living and your ambitions for your standard of living here, but not nothing in the substance of, hey, grandpa's committed to providing. Grandma's like, you need to provide emotionally. He's like, yeah, I get it. She goes back to work. It's how they were making their household work so that they could love their kids and raise their kids. Well, can I be an advocate for that decision for your yeah. for your grandparents? I mean, because it says be devoted to the home, be a keeper at home for the woman, it doesn't follow that the man is not to be a keeper at home. You know, you read any old Puritans, they're always exhorting men to not waste all the money of the family on the pup, okay? And so... There are many, many, many men. I have a friend, a guy that talks about the importance of the home, motherhood, and fatherhood, and having children and everything. But when he comes home, he goes out to a shed behind his house and sits and drinks scotch and smokes cigars. He needs to be a keeper at home. And he's on the property, but he's not home for his children. So I'd argue that your mother, by going to work, was a keeper at home. Yeah. Because her first priority was her home and her family. Yeah, I think so too. But I think about that. And I think about just where do you sort of draw lines? Because that's my grandma. Then we come to my stepmom. Well, growing up, my stepmom was there when we left school for the bus in the morning. She was there when we got off the bus. She was also the senior designer at an interior design firm. She would go back in in the evenings, most nights after we were in bed. And she also is a professor at Ivy Tech. She helped me with all my school projects. She helped me with my homework. Mm -hmm. She was at my baseball games, at my basketball games. She was never not there. Let's say I was a pastor. Yeah. And she was my wife. I think I'd have to tell her to stop the interior design work. And the reason is, the thing that really bothers me about pastors today is they don't preach this. And so a huge amount of the pastoral work of the church doesn't get done Mm -hmm. because the pastors and elders' wives are working. And that has been something I've had to fight against being bitter about at times here at our church, that people just take for granted that Mary Lee is able to go into every counseling session, be a doula, go help with kids. But sometimes I think we have to realize that The job of a husband doesn't allow his wife to do the things that your stepmother did. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And so what can be right for them would be hideously wrong for a pastor. Yep. And so I guess, Nate, what I'm trying to say is, if there are principles here in, in Scripture that are universally applicable and universally hard to obey, right, it's especially true that the pastor have his home in order in this exact thing. Because if the pastor's house 
does not have a woman who honors the household, who on earth in the church is going to do it? And I remember, you know, when I preached that sermon, Mary Lee and I, I mean, we come from Wheaton. If there's any place it's trashed this, it's Wheaton. That and Conrad and Bayway's church out in, in Lusaka, where I hear that, that a huge number of the women actually have jobs and pay, pay some woman to raise their children, the help. And so, in other words, sophisticated, reformed evangelicals have been at the bleeding edge of violating this text of Scripture. And so, when Mary Lee and I moved to Wisconsin and we took the church, Leadership Magazine had an interview with a bunch of famous pastor's wives, like Jill Briscoe and Barb Hughes and the you know other women whose husbands were high-profile pastors of wealthy, large churches. And they asked them, all of them, these were evangelicals, they asked them, what, what responsibilities do you have as a pastor's wife? And all of them, to a man, it's a joke, to a man, they all said, that's my husband's job and I have a different calling. Except Barb Hughes, who every single time said, I don't have a separate calling from my husband. My husband's a pastor and it's my job to help him. I'm a helpmate. I would never give it up. Why would I want to do something other than being at my husband's side as he's a... And I mean, she was relentless in saying that every time she could in that interview. And from that point on, Mary Lee and I were in love with Barb Hughes. Wrote her a letter, told her how encouraging. We didn't know her at the time. And so I want to say that when your mother, your grandmother, your mother are doing the things they're doing, it's very different from Amanda saying, I'm going to put my kids in daycare because I'm competent, I'm bright, and I have a good disposition. And so I could pull down more money than my husband in a heartbeat, which, of course, we all know Amanda could do. Yep. But she can't. Right. Why? Because she's committed to the, to the work. But isn't that because she's incompetent and she's barefoot, she's pregnant, and she's stupid? And if you think that, you should meet her. But isn't that what everybody says? That is the kind of thing that the world does say, yeah. And hasn't the world infiltrated the church to such a degree that that's what the church does with a woman like Amanda? Absolutely. Don't you think that a huge number of evangelicals and reformed women pity your wife? Yep. Do you pity her? No. Sometimes I do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because she's married to me. No, <clears throat> it's because it is so hard to be a, a young mother. But we shouldn't add to the difficulty by... Being ungrateful, ingrateful, and not affirming and not mm -hmm. fighting to the death, this damnable demon of feminism that yep. has relegated godly women to the dust heap of history. It is horrific to think of how uh, incredibly defaced we are in these matters and, and how we run to it. You know, every week we haven't even at all talked about the problems that, that come with the natural uh, blending of men and women in workplaces or in the military or any, so many of those issues that are byproducts, but I'm talking about poisonous byproducts of this push in our culture. Men having no, men being uh, emasculated and women, you know, Tim was talking earlier about how men, how did you say it, Tim? It's thorns and thistles and it's pain in childbirth. Mm -hmm. We are actually we actually see in our culture women being pushed and pushed and pushed toward thorns and thistles mm -hmm. and, and men being pushed and pushed and pushed towards childbirth. And it's it's lunacy. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because of what it ends up producing. It's interesting. You know, when Michael and Ben wanted to get married, I wanted Michael I think I've told that story in this podcast. I wanted Michael. She was a National Merit Scholar, very okay. bright. And I wanted her to go and show how she could whoop up on any man, intellectually, personality. She was just wonderful. And so when they wanted to get married, we said, no, you need to finish college first. I remember the day that Michael came to me and Michael said to me, Daddy, I'm just trying to do what you taught me to do. And of course, <laughs> oh my goodness, immediately, all my sin was so clear to me. I was living aspirationally. I wanted to prove to the people at my former church that they may think I'm stupid, but my children ain't. And look at them. Look how well they're doing. National merit and this, that, and the other thing, you know, going to this school and that school. 
And all of a sudden, I have this child who has believed God when I'm not believing God and who wants me to come back home. And I mean, oh my goodness, I'll never forget that moment where all of a sudden I just realized that I am subverting obedience and honoring of God in my, in my high school college-age daughter, you know? And I think as, as fathers and husbands, what we always have to remember is that God is no man's debtor. That's what my dad always used to say. And that there's no house or car or farm or land. There's nothing we give up, but that he doesn't reward us a hundred times in this world and in the world to come. And so if we give up our wives' ability to pull in a lot of money, and honestly, all of our women here, our wives, can do that. Is God going to be our debtor? No. And so now, for myself, you know, I have like 26, 27 grandchildren, and, but, but the kids, our kids are walking with God, and they love the church, and not just this church, but other churches. And I don't have anything bad on my conscience. Well, I shouldn't say that. I do have much sin on my conscience. But God has been faithful in producing unbelievable beauty. We get together a couple times a year for most of a week, and we enjoy each other. And it's not hackneyed. It's not something that we show to the world. Look at us having fun. And so I want to encourage anybody who's listening to this, who is in play, the world's trying to force you into its mold, trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Don't turn it into a moralistic, legalistic, hackneyed thing. But my goodness, if you have an opportunity to choose between pulling in dough and having status and just being a wife and just being a mother, for heaven's sakes, that's an easy choice, you know? I wanted to say about the issue of for husbands and fathers if you're a husband you should be tending caring for your wife in and and protecting her from the pressures of the world that are coming down on her head you know tim was talking earlier about the the woman who's ashamedly admits that she's a keeper at home that's something that husbands should tend to their wives in protecting them from those kinds of pressures celebrating with their wives, their wives' uh, godliness, and affirming them in that godliness and helping them in the pressures that they feel against the world. But it's also true, fathers, for you and your daughters. Hmm. You should be working with your daughters from a very young age to inoculate them against this pressure, because they're going to feel it from the time they're of the age where they could be in brownies which is nothing, Girl Scouts and Brownies are nothing but feminist indoctrination organizations today anyway. They're going to have this kind of thing foisted on them in every kind of uh, environment that they're in. And you have to help them when they're, when they're very young, all the way up and then they're just about to graduate to high, sc high school and maybe going to go off to college. You should be having conversations with your daughters at appropriate times, the right ways, having conversations with them to try to, again, protect them, inoculate them, tell them that, no, you understand that they're being pressured by the world, but this is not how we live. We don't have to succumb to the pressures of the world. God has called us to this, male and female. Mm -hmm. You celebrate the fact that your daughter is a woman. You celebrate the fact that she can be a, a servant of God and bring much uh, glory to him with her life. And then you help her to process through those hard temptations and pressures that she's facing and not make her into a prairie muffin, but make her into something that's neither prairie muffin nor feminist. Lo and behold, godly. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, there's a woman that's godly that is just completely categorically different than anything else. One of the things we have to realize is that Jesus was regularly grieving over the condition of God's people at his time, saying that they were sheep without a shepherd. And again and again, the Gospels tell us that the way that he responded to that grief was by teaching them. And we tend to denigrate teaching. We, we think it's cheap. 
But that's what Pastor Carell is talking about. He's talking about constantly teaching our wives and our children and our churches and everyone that it is a wonderful gift for a woman to be a wife and a mother, that it is wonderful for her to have babies. And we're not doing this because it makes us feel better as husbands. It doesn't actually. Most of the time, husbands get depressed when they find out their wife is pregnant. Now, we know, I know people are going to have a fit that I just said that. I'm sorry. But the truth is, one more mouth to feed is an expression because it is an expression. And, and the fact is, women often are diffident about finding out they're pregnant. Often, they greet it with tears and then are happy to announce it later. I would look for opportunities to inoculate my children against patronization of my wife being a mother and a wife. And I remember being at Meg's Field, which if you've ever played uh, Flight Stimulator, Microsoft's old software program, that was one of the key airports on that. It was right on Lake Michigan, right by the aquarium. Huh? I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we were there for the aquarium and some other things, Museum of Science and Industry, Natural History, one time with a family. And we saw all of a sudden all of the uh, media trucks with their satellite dishes were headed out to this little airport right on the lake. And so I said to the kids, let's go out there and see what's going on. So we drove out, walked into the airport, and it has this little balcony looking out over the very small gate section. And sure enough, somebody important was flying in. And she came in, it was a woman, and we found out that she was a candidate for governor who at the time was secretary of state or something. And I mean, every single media outlet in Chicago was there with the cameras, with the microphones, interviewing the Klieglites, everything was there. And we're looking down on it from the top. And I can tell that this is impressive to my children, you know. And so I took that opportunity. I said, kids, see that woman? She's very important. Is oh, oh, yeah, daddy. Oh, yeah. But do you realize she, she is not nearly as important as your mother? Any idiot can be a secretary of state and a governor, but it takes a godly wise woman to raise you as children and to help me as a husband. And I know that people would, if they heard that, they'd think that me thinks the, the man doth protest too much, or they'd say, you're being so patronizing. But this is what Jesus saw is that there was no teaching. And so the sheep were without a shepherd. So what Max is saying, that you have to protect your family. That requires you teaching them. We don't need anybody else starting uh, Keepers at Home Society and, and, and buying lace for their children and stuff like that. No, no, that's hackneyed. No, okay? What we need is just a word fitly spoken. We don't need a call. We need a word fitly spoken. Now, I want to get in a couple other things because I know we're getting out of time. And there's several things that need to be said. One of them is... There's this idea that it's good for children to have the uh, acculturation and to have the socialization of being in daycare, you know, and the government's pushing for us to have another year of schooling at the low end and have it mandatory and full day because that facilitates our two-income households, all right? Chesterton, over a century ago, said this. He said, we act as if there is an end, there are, there is an endless supply of money to hire an endless supply of childcare workers to do what God ordained for one woman to do with a small group of children. Okay. And he says, if God had intended children to be raised in daycare, he would have had women give birth to litters. And it's funny and it's true. Okay. Let's let nature teach us. Okay. If Generally, women give birth to one child at a time, whereas a pig gives birth to 55,000. That might indicate something about the human child, man's child, you know, a baby. And then he ends up by saying that all this talk about daycare and, and having that be our priority, he says, it's so insane. He says, it's like a man who walks into his garden to his tomato plant and puts up an umbrella above the tomato plant in the middle of a rainstorm and proceeds to water the tomato plant himself. And it's a helpful image. One final thing, there's a book called What's Wrong with the World that Chesterton wrote. If you don't hear anything else in this talk, 
Make sure you get that book and read it to your wife and all your daughters who are young mothers, because Chesterton in that book inoculates you against the idea that to be a mother and to be a wife is easy, and for a woman to be a president and a prime minister is hard. And he says, I will not pity a mother because of how easy and mindless her work is. I pity her because of how cosmic and unthinkably difficult her work is. All her husband has to do is go off to the shop and nail little nails into the sole of the shoe to keep the leather on the bottom of the shoe. And he does that every day, his whole life. And then he says, so that his wife is free to be at home and introduce her children to the world, to the universe. Okay, we have to teach this thing if our daughters are going to be willing to have children and to follow in the footsteps of their mothers. Then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alberson and executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson as our All Fine Warhorn products. You can send your questions for us to tcw at warhornmedia.com. That's T as in Tango, C as in Charlie, W as in Whiskey at warhornmedia.com. 